Well, uh, at Salem Church, we Salem, uh, I'm preaching through the book of Acts still, and so you're hearing from the book of Acts this evening. And uh, we're in Acts chapter 20, verses uh, 7 and following, so I'd encourage you to turn there in your Bibles. And let me give you the context. Paul is in his third missionary journey. And he's in the final weeks of his third missionary journey. And uh, we find him in today's passage in Troas. Now, Troas uh, was a very important port in the Roman Empire. From your perspective, if you're looking at the western coast of Asia Minor here, modern Turkey, Uh, Troas would be the northwestern port that is the port that is closest to Europe. And and anyway, Paul is at this port in Troas. It's a commercial center. There's at least 50,000 people living there. And and basically what he's doing is he's going to go from Troas southward along the the, uh, Asia Minor coast and then end up in Jerusalem. He is en route ultimately to Jerusalem. He's en route ultimately to Rome. We're in chapter 20, in the middle of chapter 21, he will come under house arrest. And so this is the last free journey that he is going to take. And it's not Paul's only time in Troas. Uh, you'll remember the event where uh, Paul was wanting to minister in Asia. And when we say Asia, that Asia Minor, again, the area of Turkey. Uh, but then uh, during the night, he received a vision of a man saying, come over to Macedonia. Remember that? And so they immediately thought God's calling us there, and so they left. Where did they leave from? They were in Troas that night when he had that vision. Maybe he was there just one night, and they went into Macedonia. Again, that was Acts chapter 16. But sometime along the way, maybe it was earlier in his third missionary journey, Paul planted a church in Troas. In 2 Corinthians Two chapter 12, he talks about when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, a door opened for me. And then in his final letter that Paul wrote, what was his final letter? It was 2 Timothy. In his final letter, Paul writes to Timothy, when you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. So again, This is not Paul's first or only time in Troas, but for today's passage, Paul is coming through Troas at the end of his third missionary journey en route to Jerusalem, and he's in a hurry to get Jerusalem because he wants to be there for Pentecost. Paul is with a number of companions. You know, again, I may have mentioned this last time I was here, we tend to think of Paul as as almost superhuman, and he was remarkable But he was just not out there by himself. He often ministered with companions. And his companions had gone on ahead of him, landed at Troas, and waited for Paul, who was accompanied by Luke, to arrive there. But the companions that are with them there in Troas are Sopater, Aristarchus, Segundus, Gaius, Timothy, Tychicus, and Trophimus. Okay, so you've got Paul, his companions there in this... this, uh, this port city there on the northwestern shore of Asia Minor. And with that, I'm going to start reading it, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, and of course, Luke is the author of 
the book of Acts, and the Holy Spirit, of course, led Luke along. But Luke is, he's present here. He's writing in the first person, plural. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. Okay, so who's gathered together? It's Paul and his multiple companions, and it's the Christians of Troas. Now, I want you to notice several things about this one verse that we just read. First of all, notice that they are gathered on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. Now, as I mentioned, Paul is in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. He, wants, he wanted to get there by Passover, didn't make it, but now he wants to get there by Pentecost. And, and they're staying in Troas for seven days. Why are they for seven days if he's in a hurry? Well, it might have been because of the ship schedule, but it's more likely that the delay was, was in order to meet with the believers on the first day of the week. And, of course, that practice began with the early church, the first day of the week. They met together for worship and fellowship and sacraments. They called it the Lord's Day. Sunday was the resurrection of the day. And, and so here they're gathered on that first day of the week. Secondly, I want you to notice from this is that the Lord's Supper was part of their Sunday practice. Again, it says on the first day of the week when we were gathered to break bread. And here this indicates the Lord's Supper since the breaking of the bread is considered part of the expressed purpose of the gathering. And the practice of the early church was for there to be the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that accompanied a meal. And the Lord's Supper, of course, was commanded by Christ himself. We read in Luke chapter 22, verse 19, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So on the first day of the week, they gathered. They had the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. But also notice at this gathering the instruction was included. On the first of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them. Now this was the practice of the church from the earliest days. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we read this. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And friends, this should be our practice too. This is our practice, and it is not an undue burden it is an honor and it is a joy. But let us be clear that for the Christian, gathering with other believers for worship and the Lord's Supper and instruction is commanded in Scripture both by, by didactic teaching but also by example. It's not optional. I know that during the period of COVID that the idea of the church on the web expanded. At Salem we did it. For a few weeks, and understand churches everywhere were having to balance the command to gather with an unknown, potentially deadly virus. Of course, church on TV has been around for, for decades. And I want to parse this carefully. Are there benefits to having the church available on TV and on the web? Yes, of course there are. But are these venues, are these biblically permissible? ongoing options for the Christian who is capable, capable of gathering with the saints? And the clear answer is no. Uh, it, does the Christian have the freedom to decide, I'll no longer actively take part in a local church. 
I'll just do church by myself or with my family at home? And the answer is no. Now for the sick, for the impaired, for those who may want to get additional teaching, broadcasted services may be of great benefit. But I would even say there, but for the homebound and for the impaired, we, and particularly the elders, but the gathering of the people, are called to take the church to such people, to bring them fellowship, to pray with them, to bring them instruction, to take them to Lord's Supper wherever they reside. But for those capable of gathering, they, they must choose on an ongoing basis to gather because if they don't, they're living in disobedience and are in sin. Hebrews 10 Verses 24 and 25 says it this way, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. So so to give up meeting with other Christians, to desert the assembly, is not just unwise, it's a sin. There's no excuse for it on an ongoing basis to willingly absent oneself from the Christian assembly. But again, it's not just a duty, it's a joy and it's a privilege. The psalmist wrote, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. He didn't say, I was sad when they said unto me. He didn't say, I was mad when they said unto me. He didn't say, I was bad when they said unto me. He didn't say, I used to go there as a fad. He said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Now there I want to be careful because we bring not only our joys when we gather, we also bring our sorrows. The depressed and the lonely have a place at the gathering of the saints. But that being said, we must guard against this. We must guard against thinking of God's commands as burdensome. In 1 John 5, 2 through 3, we read this. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Okay, well, pressing on, we read here that Paul, intending to leave the next day, prolonged his message. That is, he continued his message until midnight. For all Paul knows, and for all the Christians in Troas know, this may be Paul's last opportunity to speak to them, and this may be their last opportunity to hear Paul speak. And as far as I know, it was. Because he was headed to Jerusalem, he will go to Rome, and again, beginning in the middle of chapter 21, he will be under house arrest. So this meeting is on a Sunday evening, and Paul will depart the next day, Monday morning, and he has a lot to say. And he speaks a long time. Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about in ministry that he had many sleepless nights. This was one of them. Now, By Western standards, we would think of this speaking for hours and hours as being excruciatingly long. And it it was a very long time. But please know that in many countries and many cultures, it's not uncommon to meet for hours and hours and have messages for hours and hours. We had a black lady in our church in Starkville, Mississippi, where I was formerly a pastor, and she grew up in predominantly black churches. And when she would come to Grace Presbyterian, she'd say, Pastor, I just get there, and then we go home. 
So it's not uncommon in certain cultures and churches for it to go much longer than we tend to think of it in our own traditions. Now look at verses 8 through the middle of verse 9. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. And there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. So you have in this room Paul and his eight companions, the believers of Troas. We don't know how many were in the room or the room's size, but I suspect the people filled the place. Maybe it was a little tight, but maybe it was very tight with people in there. And then you have these oil lamps that are burning, that are giving off fumes. And then presumably these people went to bed significantly earlier than this. Sure, they had lamps to use when necessary, but they didn't have the convenience of lights. They didn't have entertainment centers. And so it's probably past their normal bedtime. And we're introduced to Eutychus. Eutychus was a common name then, but we find out about him as he's a young man and he's sitting in a windowsill. Multi-story buildings were common in the most populous cities. And above the first floor, some of the windows were large and thick and low enough to sit on. When we were living in Ecuador, the older buildings were made of packed mud. And the walls, I'm no joke, they're like, like this thick. And, and so probably the room is crowded. The windowsill is a place to sit. Perhaps being a young man out of courtesy, he leaves the floor space for older folks. The room is warm and stuffy because of bodies and fumes of oil lamps. The windowsill provide a little bit of fresh air. And Paul talks and he talks and he keeps on talking. Perhaps Eutychus had worked a full day before arriving at this gathering. And all of this may have contributed to his drowsiness. And he is overcome by sleep. Now let's talk about sleeping in church. I saw a pillow on the second row. Is that for visitors? Like you have special parking places and special pillows? This is perhaps a good place to say, let the one who has never sinned cast the first stone. I can remember as a boy sleeping against my mother's shoulder at Highland Hills Baptist Church in Macon. And I think maybe after the choir finished, my mother leaned over to say, someone wasn't that pretty or whatever. My head went, bam, on the pew. I, I, I had as a, as a pastor when I was in college and then had the joy of working with him, a man by the name of Dee Dee Welling, a wonderful, faithful pastor. He served two churches simultaneously for over 40 years in North Carolina. And when I was his assistant, I was his first assistant ever, he counseled me not to be critical of people who fall asleep in church. Now, I don't think I was being critical, but this was some counsel he gave me. He said, you do not know what the person has done before coming to church. It could be the farmer who's been up before dawn seeing to animals. It could be someone that takes medicine that induces drowsiness. It could be the mother that has been up much of the night caring for her child. It could be someone who just couldn't get a good night's rest or perhaps someone for unavoidable circumstances ends up being exhausted 
or it could be that the preacher's not been faithful in his preparation. May that never be. But anyway, I took his advice to heart, and I've not been... Honestly, I'm so busy focusing on what I'm doing, I don't really notice so much when people fall asleep. I probably shouldn't tell you that, because you may feel more liberty. This is OPC Church. You won't feel too much liberty. I'm not worried about that. But, but that being said, that being said, you know, we read in the Lord's Providence the, the uh, questions from the larger catechism regarding the second commandment, and I, that bared beautifully on what we're talking about right now. And I want to read just a portion of a question just a, a few doors down. I'm going to read uh, the question and a portion of the answer from the larger catechism 117. It says, how is the Lord's day to be sanctified? We are to prepare our hearts with such foresight, diligence, and moderation to dispose and seasonably dispatch our worldly business so that we may be the more free and fit for the duties of that day. We should order our lives so that we're able to give the Lord our best. We, we should, as best as we can, get the rest before worship rather than making plans that would most certainly sabotage our ability to give the Lord our best on the Lord's day. But furthermore, we must guard against that audience mindset mindset whereby one comes to be entertained. Rather, we come as those who are thankful, those who are devoted to God and attentive to his word. Now, let me get back to Eutychus here, and I'm going to read from the middle of verse 9. And as Paul kept on talking, he, that is Eutychus, was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. Uh, Now, their ceilings were probably lower than ours. Nevertheless, he probably fell in excess of 20 feet. And you know, this passage does get some smiles from Paul's long talking from the experience that I think we've all had of having to fight against sleep at one point or another in church. And, 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 and you probably know the end of the story, but please do not overlook, do not miss what a frightful experience this was for the church at Troas that night. The moment he slipped out of the window, the horrible sound of the impact below, the view out the window, the race down the stairs, probably the fastest, the most agile, including the young, arriving to the body first. Maybe Paul, up in age, was among the last to come there, and the recognition that the young man was dead. I was an assistant at First Pres Macon, and before I arrived, it wasn't too long before Sydney arrived at First Pres Macon, one of the Sunday school classes was having a Christmas party, and a couple got out of the car on the opposite side of the street of the house, and the man carrying food they had prepared for the Christmas party stepped out in front of a car and was killed there at the church Christmas party. I don't even want to think what it would be like if we were having a church meeting and during one of our gatherings, a young person had an accident and died. But this was the reality that night in Troas. I want to read to you what I think is one of the most moving scenes found in the Old Testament. There are a lot of them, right? But this is one of them. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 8 and following. I'm going to read a portion of it now and a portion of it later. One day, Elisha went to Shunem. And a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. 
She said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof and put in it a bed and a table and a chair and a lamp for him. Then he can stay here whenever he comes to us. One day when Elisha came, he went up to his room and lay down there. He said to his servant Gehazi, call the Shunammite. So he called her and she stood before him. Elisha said to him, tell her, you have gone to all this trouble for us. Now, what can be done for you? Can we speak to you on behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She replied, I have a home among my own people. What can be done for her? Elisha asked. Gehazi said, well, she has no son and her husband is old. Then Elisha said, call her. So he called her and she stood in the doorway. Elisha said, about this time next year, you will hold a son in your arms. She objected, no, my Lord, don't mislead your servant, O man of God. But the woman became pregnant. And the next year, about that time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elisha had told her. The child grew, and one day he went out to his father, who was with the reapers. My head, my head, he said to his father. His father told his servant, carry him to his mother. After the servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, then shut the door and went out. She called her husband and said, Please send me one of the servants with a donkey so that I can go to the man of God quickly in return. Why go to him today, he asked. It's not the new moon or the Sabbath. It's all right, she said. She saddled the donkey and said to her servant, Lead on. Don't slow down for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When he saw her in the distance, the man of God said to his servant Gehazi, Look, there's the Shunammite. Run to meet her and ask her, Are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? Everything is all right? Oh, no, excuse me. She said, Everything is all right. When she reached the man of God at the mountain, she took hold of his feet. Gehazi came over to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone. She is in bitter distress, but Yahweh has hidden it from me and has not told me why. She said, did I ask you for a son, my Lord? Didn't I tell you, don't raise my hopes? Now we get to verse 10. Let me read this. But Paul went down and fell upon him. And after embracing him, he said, do not be troubled for his life is in him. Now, it is not that the people, including Dr. Luke, misdiagnosed the state of Eutychus, but that Paul alone had realized that he had not actually died. No, this was a miracle. The Lord worked powerfully, mercifully through Paul here, as he had in Acts chapter 9 with with Peter and Tabitha, when Tabitha, who also called Dorcas, had died, and they called Peter, and Peter sent others out out of the room, and he knelt down and prayed and turned to the body and said, Tabitha, rise, and she opened her eyes, and he called in the saints and widows and presented her alive. Where it is like Jesus, when he went to go visit the 
the home where the little girl had died. I think it says she was nine years old. I'd have to double check that. And he said to her, Talitha Kum, little girl, I say to you, get up. And she got up and began to walk. Or where Jesus went into the town called Nain, and there a man had died and was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And he touched the casket, and they stopped, and he had compassion on her and said, do not weep. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up. Let me read to you the rest of that story from Second Kings. Elisha said to Gehazi, tuck your coat into your belt, take my staff in your hand and run. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. If anyone greets you, do not answer. Lay my staff on the boy's face. But the mother's, the child's mother said, as surely as Yahweh lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So he got up and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the boy's face, but there was no sound of response. So Gehazi went back to meet Elisha and told him, the boy is not awakened. When Elisha reached the house, there was the boy lying dead on his couch. He went in, shut the door on the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he got on the bed and lay upon the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. As he stretched himself out upon him, the boy's body grew warm. Elisha turned away and walked back and forth in the room and then got on the bed and stretched out upon him once more. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, call the Shunammite. And he did. When she came, he said, take your son. She came in, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground. Then she took her son and went out. Now verse 11 and 12, verses 11 and 12. When he had gone back up, that's when Paul had gone back up to the third floor and broken bread and eaten. He talked with them a long while until daybreak and then left. They took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. They had witnessed the power of God. They witnessed the mercy of God. No doubt that whole experience, though distressing beyond words, after the boy is uh, revived, it ignited their hearts to listen. They were no doubt awakened in more than one sense. And they heard Paul's preaching. They celebrated the Lord's Supper. And he talked a long time, even till dawn. And in verse 12, it says, they took the boy away alive and they were greatly comforted. I like a a very literal translation of that. I mean, it's not good English in a sense, but to read a very literal translation kind of helps get the point across. It's this. And they brought the boy alive and were comforted not moderately, or comforted not a little. Why? Because they were greatly comforted. Dear friends, the immoderate comfort that they experienced, the immoderate cheer that they received is like, and indeed shall be exceeded by a day that awaits us. We read this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul's writing, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. It will not be, dear friends, a widow's son here and there. It will not be one in ten million that will be blessed. All the dead in Christ will rise. All the living who are in Christ will ascend. All God's people from all ages will meet the Lord and shall always be with the Lord. And I'm amazed that David in the Old Testament, without all the wonderful revelation that we have, ended Psalm 23 by saying, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, I think I'll close with that. I think I'll close with that. Dear friends, in In the the 19th and 20th century, a lot of churches moved away from really believing that there was a bodily resurrection of Christ. But they didn't want to give up words like redemption or resurrection because those have such, such positive feeling. But friends, you and I need something that's concrete. If there's it's not if there's not an empty tomb outside of Jerusalem, we're sunk. Were people to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised. And what we need is a Savior to save us from our sins and to take us home to be with Him. And that's what He's promised to do. And we see by the example of these people being raised from the dead, the power of Christ's victory over death, and that in Him life is found. He truly died on the cross. He truly descended to the place of the dead. And he truly was raised from life. And the tomb was open, not so that he could get out, but so that others could see in. And he said he had authority to lay his life down. And he had authority to raise it up again. And he's the first fruits guaranteeing what will come to us. So there's a day that's coming that will be akin to the joy that these people had when their loved ones had died and were raised again. But it's, it's going to be all God's people from all time bursting forth from the graves. There will be no tomb. There will be no casket. There will be none of those concrete cases that enclose the casket. There will be no hard-packed ground that will have the strength to hold us in. We'll listen with him and be with him forever.